Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. General Milley, it's your testimony that you recommended 2,500 troops uh, approximately stay in Afghanistan. Um, as I've said many times before this committee and other committees, I don't share my personal recommendations to the president, but I can tell you my personal opinion and my assessment if that's what you want. Yes, please. Uh, so what did he tell Senator Tom Cotton? You have Senator, you have, I'm sorry, General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You have General Frank McKenzie, who leads CENCOM. You have the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. All there in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee to discuss the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, this has been going on, and I'm going to share with you all of it, the, the, the original questions. I've got the opening statement from Lloyd Austin, and I've got the opening statement from Mark Milley, where he's even defending the China call. But the exchange with Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, is incredibly important. It's funny, I, I had this whole uh, segment prepared, and then I, I found even a, a better segment of it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it is so good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. We're going to dig in uh, to the debt limit and what it is uh, that we're dealing with there. Uh, Joel Griffith is scheduled to be with us, uh, does financial regulations over at Heritage Foundation. What is a debt limit? What is it they're looking to do? What is it that we're looking to spend? What happens if government shuts down? Is this all over the $3.5 trillion infrastructure package that isn't infrastructure that they now want to tell us doesn't cost any money? They are actually using this line and they think we're buying in. As I said to the president, I heard him say, this is a zero dollar bill because it's all going to be paid for with taxes on the wealthiest corporations and the wealthiest individuals. That's their way of saying it won't cost anything. That's unreal. This is an irrational group of people. I'm going to get to all of it. But I want to go back to the question that Senator Tom Cotton asked of General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Because it cannot be denied that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a failure. Milley actually used the term it was a logistical success but a strategic failure, and I think those are two uh, different things. Maybe. But the conversation, of course, goes back to, did you leave Americans behind? And the answer is, yes, you did. Now, you can argue, you can argue that this is really the fault of the Biden administration because the military did what they were asked to do. I actually think that's a cogent argument. It is a cogent argument. But the question before us is why wasn't Mark Milley even more direct with the president saying we have to do this, this, and this? There's a whole conversation about whether or not he'll resign. Did he think about resigning? Wait till you hear that answer. But let's go back right now to Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Republican, asking the question of Mark Milley and then going around the horn to the uh, commander there at CENTCOM McKenzie, and to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. Lily, it's your testimony that you recommended 2,500 troops uh, approximately stay in Afghanistan? Um, 
as I've said many times before this committee and other committees, I don't share my personal recommendations to the president, but I can tell you my personal opinion and my assessment if that's what you want. Yes, please. Um, yes, my assessment was uh, back in the fall of 20, and it remained consistent throughout, that uh, we should keep a steady state of 2,500, and it could bounce up to 3,500, maybe something like that, uh, in order to move toward a negotiated gated solution. Did you, present, did you ever present that assessment personally to President Biden? I don't discuss exactly what uh, my conversations are with the sitting president in the Oval Office, but I can tell you what my personal opinion was, and I'm okay. always candid. General McKenzie, do you share that assessment? Before we go any further, let's take a step back. The general just said he recommended 2,500 troops stay in Afghanistan. That's what he said. But if you go back, Joe Biden said he was never told such a thing. That it never came up to him. That no one told him that, hey, we should keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. Now, it would not have mattered, and we should be always clear about this, if, if you want an out for Austin, Millie, or McKenzie, or, or any other uh, of the brass. Biden was committed only and solely to leaving Afghanistan to be the president who ended the war. That's what he wanted. This is his legacy, and he didn't care how the legacy got there. He was going to do what Barack could not. Please, if we want to argue this, let's go grab a bar stool and start drinking. He wanted to do what Barack Obama could not, would not, or did not end the war. Matters to him greatly. Recommended 2,500 troops. The president of the United States clearly decided he knew better than the generals. Funny, last time I heard a president say that, they were vilified. That was Trump saying he knows better than the generals. In this case, wait a second, based on the, on the testimony, maybe not. Maybe he didn't know better. Cotton then goes to General McKenzie. Senator, I do share that assessment. Um, did you ever present that opinion personally to President Biden? Again, I'm not going to be able to comment on uh, those executive discussions. Did General Miller ever present that opinion personally to President Biden? I think it would be best to ask him. I believe that his opinion was well heard. Uh, Secretary Austin, uh, President Biden last month in an interview with George Stephanopoulos said that no military leader advised him to leave a small troop presence in Afghanistan. Is that true? Uh, Senator Cotton, I, uh, I believe that, uh, well, first of all, I, I know the president to be an honest and forthright man. Uh, and just, secondly, it's a simple question, Secretary Austin. He said, no. we got to stop right there. You know, Joe Biden to be what? Uh, Senator Cotton, I, uh, I believe that, uh, well, first of all, I know the president to be an honest and forthright man. Nobody asked you to give some kind of character reference to Joe Biden? That's not your job, Secretary Austin. What are you doing? If you want to know how cravenly political these people are, there you go. The two generals, right, they're still generals. They're going to give the line, but Austin is a political appointee, and he's not just going to go about answering the question. He's going to give cover. 
there are moments within. There are moments within this the the, the openings and with some of the original the the opening questions where it's clear they don't want to throw anybody under the bus, specifically Biden. But they're not answering the question. And you can even argue, well, they don't really have the answer they shouldn't be answering. It looks awful. This answer from Austin is just ugly, but let him finish. Uh, and secondly, it's a simple question, Secretary Austin. He said no senior military leader advised him to leave a small troop presence behind. Is that true or not? Did these officer and General Miller's recommendations get to the president personally? Their input was, uh, was received by the president and considered by the president, uh, for sure. Uh, in terms of what they specifically recommended, Senator, they just, as they just said, uh, they, they're not going to provide uh, what they recommended in confidence. But we know that whatever they recommended in confidence, which is the assessment they just gave Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, did reach the president. Therefore, somebody's lying. Somebody isn't telling the truth. And I would say it's Joe Biden. Because Joe Biden doesn't tell the truth. Joe Biden still lies about Amtrak. Joe Biden still lies uh, uh, about a whole series of things that have happened to him. He's like the Brian Williams of presidents. It got to him for sure, but I'm not going to say what got to him. I mean, it sounds to me, this is it's shocking to me. It sounds to me like maybe their best military advice was never presented personally to the president of the United States about such a highly consequential matter. Let me move on to another recommendation they are reported to have made. General Milley, uh, Joe Biden has said that it was the unanimous, the unanimous. Hold on, I'm going I'm I'm to get to some of that. I'm sorry, this is just, this is worthy of taking a second with. What Senator Cotton has done there is expose this question for us. Either... Either the information was given and he didn't take it, the advice, or it was never given, it was kept from him. It's one or the other. And that, that's enough to make your the, the hair on the back of your neck uh, stand on end. Then there was this question from Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat from Virginia. A very interesting thing took place. This question from Tim Kaine, and then the questions from Maisie Hirono, senator from Hawaii. Man, do I not like Maisie Hirono. And I have said on this show repeatedly, uh, do not let your daughters grow up to, to think Maisie Hirono is a, uh, is a role model. Far from it. Far from it. But she had asked some good questions. This was the question from Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat from Virginia. You remember Tim Kaine because he was the vice presidential running mate of Hillary Clinton. My chief criticism and question is this. Why did the Afghan security force and civilian government collapse so quickly? And why did the U.S. so overestimate their capacity? The second half of the question, why we overestimated their capacity, is very important. To any who have said we couldn't see this coming, the members of this committee know that's wrong. An immediate collapse may not have been the most likely outcome, but we have heard for years, particularly from the intel community, that DOD estimates of Afghan strength were way too optimistic. 
I believe the U.S. government had a good evacuation plan, but it was premised on an Afghan civilian and military government that showed high resistance to the Taliban. And so we did not adequately plan for the real possibility of a quick collapse. We need to explore both military and interagency decision-making processes to understand why we were unrealistic and how to correct that going forward. Now, that is basically, I, I, it, I didn't even bother getting to the question part because that's the part that matters. We did not adequately plan coming from the Democrats. That is the same type of statement that came from Maisie Hirono. So it made me say is, did they plan this kind of, of talk? Is this the way it's going to be? Look, we just didn't pro- adequately plan. We have to do better. Let's not have such rosy assessments next time. Well, let's not have rosy assessments ever. Let's have honest, clear assessments. If Republicans and Democrats can agree on the idea that we should have clear assessments of what the bloody heck has gone on or is going on and not rosy assessments, false assessments, well, we'd be we'd be better off. We'd be better off. Now, I'll tell you, I'm in favor of the resignation of all of them. I am absolutely in favor of their resignation. It goes without saying. Millie said, absolutely, uh, I'm not going to resign. Those those 13 service members who, who died, uh, they don't get to resign. I'm not going to resign. I thought it was a very strange answer to try and tie yourself to the troops who I can't tell you want to necessarily be tied to him. But while we're talking about troops, you may remember Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. Stuart Scheller, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, is the one who did the video asking about how in the world this happened, wanting accountability for what happened and those service members who were killed and, of course, people left behind. Posted a video to Facebook. Now, I said at the time, I believe I said publicly, but I'll say uh, again so we're all clear. I'm a believer in the chain of command, and I don't believe that members of the military get to speak out like this. And there are ramifications for these actions. If you are a member of the military actively serving and you are speaking out about your higher-ups, you should expect that there will be a response, and that response will be unkind. I oppose these things. I'll tell you that I, 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 and I don't think I'm saying this out, out of confidence, I had texted, you know, I'll just say with somebody I know who spent time in the military and asked them about this. And they didn't disagree with my assessment, but they followed up with something that I thought was telling. The rules changed, and this is how it's done now. As a very political statement, right? Not, not a military statement, a political statement. Then you got people who decide to speak out and act out in all sorts of ways, not following the chain of command. Why is this guy somehow being, uh, being singled out? Well, you should know that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller um, has been jailed. Scheller is currently in pretrial confinement. Time, date, location of the proceedings have not yet been determined, and Lieutenant Colonel Scheller will be afforded all due process. Millie is still there. Austin is still there. Blinken is still there. But a lieutenant colonel who said, hey, this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing it like this. He's in jail. 
That's a problem. A very ugly problem. Oh, this testimony. I'm going to give you all of General Milley's opening statement. I'm going to get all of that to you. But we've got other things going on, including the bigotry continues in the schools. And it's why parents fight. That story is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. I oppose the banning of books like I oppose the burning of books. I don't think you should stop somebody from speaking. So when I see Tanisha Coates, author uh, Between the World and Me, a uh, columnist on CBS discussing banned books and the, the dangers of censoring books, I wholeheartedly agree. But the conversation gets very confused when Gail King, that, that's Oprah's number one, uh, asks this question. <laughs> okay, so let's let's look at this. Four of the top ten books were banned because of it's called anti-black racism. Is that a coincidence to you? What do you make of that? No, I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence yeah. at all. Um, I think for most of American history, uh, African American authors have not had the purchase uh, on the American conscience that they have right now. We've always talked among ourselves. Uh, mostly, the dialogue in terms of books has been amongst ourselves. You're at a moment where you know people like Ibram Kendi, people like Nicole Hannah Jones, they're reaching a lot of people. Even sells a lot of books. The 1619 Project was seen by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So this is really about white people and particularly white children now being exposed to ideas that I think previously were, were segregated, frankly. So does it make... Hmm. Interesting take. Bad take, but interesting take. That 1619 Project and, uh, and How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi are reaching a lot of people is not the issue. The issue is that the 1619 Project is based on a fraud and that anti-racism as a concept is bigotry. Confront racism with racism and confront future racism with racism or confront discrimination with discrimination confront future discrimination with discrimination the question is should that be taught not that the book shouldn't exist should it be taught and this is where the difference is and this is a purposeful con uh, conflation of the, of the facts these books in schools as teaching tools i oppose the book on the library shelf in the public library or in a bookstore i'm fine with just like I'm a fine with Abigail Schreier's books on transgender girls and, and uh, the craze uh, seducing girls, I should say. Shouldn't be banned. And it shouldn't be, you know, sent out from book clubs with an apology. Oh, we didn't mean to send out this horrible, terrible book. It's purposeful what he's doing there, and it's wrong. What did General Milley say in his opening statement to the Senate Armed Services Committee? That's next. I'm Tony Katz. You've got General Mark Milley. You have the Secretary of... He's the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You have the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. You have General Frank McKenzie, who runs CENCOM, testifying in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee. We already know. And it seems very clear that General Mark Milley and uh, General McKenzie want to keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. And they make the claim that they gave that recommendation. And the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, says... President gets recommendations. Now, they won't go on the record and say, this is the official recommendation I made. Here's my assessment, though. They'll say that. 
But Biden says he never got such a recommendation. Never got, never heard such a thing. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, I put forth to you uh, that Joe Biden lies. This is my take. But I think it's very important to hear everything that got said. Everything that got discussed so we have it in full. So I want to bring you two parts. Part of General Mark Milley's opening statement to the Senate Armed Services Committee, and then his commentary about China, specifically the idea of the book, the book by Bob Woodward and uh, Robert Costa, this book called Peril, which I did not buy nor read. Wait, producer Ari did, didn't you? Yeah, it was good. Okay, of course you did. Of course you did. I mean, Millie says he confirms he spoke to Bob Woodward and spoke to Wall Street uh, Journal's Michael Bender for his book. But he doesn't know if the reporting is accurate because the quote is, I haven't read any of the books, so I don't know. Well, that's a, that's a nice bit of cover right there. Meanwhile, he gives his opening statement. I want to share part of that with you. And then his commentary on China, where supposedly he was warning his counterparts in China, hey, listen, if there was going to be an attack, I'd warn you. First, the opening statement. Uh, During the past 20 years, uh, the men and women of the United States military, along with our allies and partners, fought the Taliban, brought Osama bin Laden to justice, denied al-Qaeda sanctuary, and protected our homeland for two consecutive decades. Over 800,000 of us in uniform served in Afghanistan. Most importantly, 2,461 of us gave the ultimate sacrifice, while 20,698 of us were wounded in action, and countless others of us suffer the invisible wounds of war. There's no doubt in my mind that our efforts prevented an attack on the homeland from Afghanistan, which was our core original mission and everyone who served in that war should be proud your service mattered beginning in 2011 we steadily drew down our troop numbers consolidated and closed bases and retrograded equipment from afghanistan at the peak in 2011 we had 97,000 u.s troops alongside 41,000 nato troops in afghanistan Ten years later, when Ambassador Calizade signed the Doha Agreement with Mullah Berader on 29 February 2020, the United States had 12,600 U.S. troops with 8,000 NATO and 10,500 contractors. This has been a 10-year multi-administration drawdown, not a 19-month or 19-day neo. Under the Doha Agreement, the U.S. would begin to withdraw its forces, contingent upon Taliban meeting certain conditions, which would lead to a political agreement between the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan. There were seven conditions applicable to the Taliban and eight conditions applicable to the United States. While the Taliban did not attack U.S. forces, which was one of the conditions, it failed to fully honor any any other condition under the Doha Agreement. And perhaps most importantly for U.S. national security, the Taliban has never renounced al-Qaeda or broke its affiliation with them. We, the United States, adhered to every condition. In the fall of 2020, 
My analysis was that an accelerated withdrawal without meeting specific and necessary conditions risks losing the substantial gains made in Afghanistan, damaging U.S. worldwide credibility and could precipitate a general collapse of the ANSF and the Afghan government resulting in a complete Taliban takeover or general civil war. That was a year ago. My assessment remained consistent throughout. Based on my advice and the advice of the commanders, then Secretary of Defense Esper submitted a memorandum on 9 November recommending to maintain U.S. forces at a level between about 2,500 and 4,500 in Afghanistan until conditions were met for further reduction. Two days later, on 11 November 2020, I received an unclassified signed order directing the United States military to withdraw all forces from Afghanistan no later than 15 January 2021. After further discussions regarding the risks associated with such a withdrawal, the order was rescinded. On 17 November, we received a new order to reduce levels to 2,500 plus enabling forces no later than 15 January. When President Biden was inaugurated, there were approximately 3,500 U.S. troops, 5,400 NATO troops, and 6,300 contractors in Afghanistan with a specified task of train, advise, and assist, along with a small contingent of counterterrorism forces. The strategic situation at inauguration was stalemate. The Biden administration, through the National Security Council process, conducted a rigorous interagency review of the situation in Afghanistan in February, March, and April. During this process, the views of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all of us, the CENTCOM commander, General McKenzie, the US-4A commander, General Miller, and myself were all given serious consideration by the administration. That's an interesting opening statement, and he's, he's not done there. You talk about your position throughout, 2,500 to 4,500 troops. You believe that the Taliban can move uh, quickly, that things could collapse quickly, and that your position was given serious consideration. Do we know that? Do we know that? It seems that it was not so much given serious consideration. I, again, argue that the real story here is that Biden wanted out so desperately, so desperately that it wouldn't have mattered While it is clear to me that General Milley is a political animal, and I think the whole controversy and conversation about critical race theory within the military uh, proves that point, it also seems clear to me that it is possible that he just went about saying this is what we should do. And the president said, nah. And he did not think there was there was anything else to to discuss here there was no reason to push back and certainly as he had already described it and described it in this hearing today in front of the senate armed services committee no reason to resign he wasn't going to resign i'm not going to resign just because someone doesn't take my advice well if not taking your advice in your view would lead to soldiers getting killed maybe resigning is the best way to get somebody's attention But when you are a political animal, maybe you don't resign. Now, that was only part one 
Part two involved the call to China. What was reported in the book, the idea that uh, there was this chatter that China was worried about a possible attack. Now, what's really possible here is that China misinformation works so well that Chinese authorities found the misinformation, believed it to be real, and then thought that Trump was going to do some kind of wag the dog moment and engage in an attack on China. So that would have been a reason for Milley to make a phone call. We even know that Secretary of, of Defense at the time, Mark Esper, may have been the one to say, hey, make sure all, our, all, our, uh, all your people, all your contemporaries are good to go. So two things took place. Number one, making sure everybody knew down the chain of command what to do if X, if Y, if Z. Uh, we've talked about this uh, with, with people in the military before, talking about, look, we, we review these things quarterly. We always make sure, okay, if this happens, here's procedure one, here's procedure two, here's procedure three. That makes perfect sense to me. And there could have been a call Make sure everybody's cool, calm, and collected out there, won't you? And General Milley would be like, yeah, I got it. That could happen. But here he is defending the phone call, which according to the book, the Bob Woodward book, stated that Milley told his Chinese counterpart, look, if the United States was going to attack you, I'd give you a warning. Because that, that you go to jail for. That's treason. General Milley on the subject. If I could, I, I know uh, that there's some issues in the media that are of deep concern to many members on the committee. And with your permission, I'd like to address those for a minute or two. Again, I've submitted memoranda for the committee to take a look at. You may proceed. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I've, I've served this nation for 42 years. I spent years in combat, and I buried a lot of my troops who died while defending this country. My loyalty to this nation its people and the Constitution hasn't changed and will never change as long as I have a breath to give. My loyalty is absolute and I will not turn my back on the fallen. With respect to the Chinese calls, I routinely communicated with my counterpart, General Lee, with the knowledge and coordination of civilian oversight. I am specifically directed to communicate with the Chinese by Department of Defense guidance, the policy dialogue system. These military-to-military -military communications at the highest level are critical to the security of the United States in order to deconflict military actions, manage crisis, and present, prevent war between great powers that are armed with the world's most deadliest weapons. The calls on 30 October and 8 January were coordinated before and after with Secretary Esper and Acting Secretary Miller's staffs and the interagency. The specific purpose of the October and January calls were to generate or were generated by concerning intelligence, which caused us to believe the Chinese were worried about an attack on them by the United States. I know, I am certain that President Trump did not intend to attack the Chinese, and it is my directed responsibility and it was my directed responsibility by the secretary to convey that intent to the Chinese. My task at that time was to de-escalate. My message again was consistent. Stay calm, steady, and de-escalate. We are not going to attack you. At Secretary of Defense Esper's direction, I made a call to General Lee on 30 October.
Eight people sat in that call with me, and I read out the call within 30 minutes of the call ending. On 31 December, the Chinese requested another call with me. The Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia-Pacific Policy helped coordinate my call, which was then scheduled for 8 January, and he made a preliminary call on 6 January. Eleven people attended that call with me, and readouts of this call were distributed to the interagency that same day. Shortly after my call ended with General Lee, I personally informed both Secretary of State Pompeo and White House Chief of Staff Meadows about the call, among other topics. Soon after that, I attended a meeting with Acting Secretary Miller, where I briefed him on the call. Later that same day, on 8 January, Speaker of the House Pelosi called me to inquire about the President's ability to launch nuclear weapons. I sought to assure her that nuclear launch is governed by a very specific and deliberate process. She was concerned and made, very, or made various personal references characterizing the President. I explained to her that the President is the sole nuclear launch authority and he doesn't launch them alone, and that I am not qualified to determine the mental health of the President of the United States. There are processes, protocols, and procedures in place, and I repeatedly assured her that there is no chance of an illegal, unauthorized, or accidental launch. By presidential directive and secretary of defense directives, the chairman is part of the process to ensure the president is fully informed when determining the use of the world's deadliest weapons. By law, I am not in the chain of command, and I know that. However, by presidential directive, and DOD instruction, I am in the chain of communication to fulfill my legal statutory role as the President's primary military advisor. After the Speaker Pelosi call, I convened a short meeting in my office with key members of my staff to refresh all of us on the procedures which we practice daily at the action officer level. Additionally, I immediately informed Acting Secretary of Defense Miller of, Sec of uh, Speaker Pelosi's phone call. At no time was I attempting to change or influence the process, usurp authority, or insert myself in the chain of command. But I am expected, I am required to give my advice and ensure that the President is fully informed on military matters. I am submitting for the record a more detailed and unclassified memoranda that I believe you all now have, although late. And I welcome a thorough walkthrough on every single one of these events. And I'd be happy in a classified session to talk in detail about the intelligence that drove these calls. I'm also happy to make available any email, phone logs, memoranda, witnesses, or anything else you need to understand these events. My oath is to support the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will never turn my back on that oath. I firmly believe in civilian control of the military as a bedrock principle essential to the health of this republic and I'm committed to ensuring that the military stays clear of domestic politics. I look forward to your questions, and thank you, Chairman, for the extra time. I think he actually did that part very well. And based on the, the reporting that we've discussed here about the recommendation from Mark Esper to reach out, I didn't think what he did was problematic. I do, however, think that the phone call from Speaker Pelosi is very problematic. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz.
The Dow is down over 500. NASDAQ is down 400. This is uh, it's another day of just punches in the face for the market, which has shown up until the last couple of weeks that it could take the hits and keep on going. Whatever's going on around the world, they're fine. Doesn't look to be the case. I mean, one bad day, right? One big lost day. That was like about a week ago or so. It's the second one. Is it doesn't mean anything. Meanwhile, maybe it this has something to do with uh, the debt and the debt limit. We're going to be discussing that next. What is the limit actually, and should it be raised? That story coming up. I'm Tony Katz.